Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Federalist Society's Teleforum webinar this afternoon, March 3rd, 2022. We'll be discussing the future of the Supreme Court. I'm Dean Reuter, Senior Vice President and General Counsel at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that all, all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call. Also, this call is being recorded. Uh, we're very pleased to welcome four speakers to our program today. Two will be focusing on criminal law primarily, and two will be focusing primarily on civil rights. They're each gonna give us opening remarks at five minutes or so, then a little bit of back and forth. But as always, we'll be looking to the audience for questions when we get to that portion of the program. Please be thinking of those questions. We're gonna hear first from Ethan Davis. He's a partner the Special Matters and Government Investigations at King & Spalding. He'll be followed by Professor Dan Epps. He's a professor of law at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, then turning to the civil rights issues, we'll hear from Roger Severino, a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, who will be followed by Professor William Marshall, Bill Marshall, the Keenan Professor of Law at the University of North Carolina. Uh, with that, Ethan Davis, the floor is yours. Thanks, Dean, and I'm happy to be here with all of you to discuss uh, Justice Jackson's potential impact on the Supreme Court's criminal law cases. It's also great to be here with these very distinguished uh, co-panelists and friends. This is a topic near and dear to my practice. Um, my practice is, consists of representing clients under investigation by the federal government, and I've done several tours of duty at the Justice Department as well. Um, and most recently, until September of 2020, I served as the acting assistant attorney general in charge of the civil division. So let me offer a few thoughts. First, it's, it's somewhat hard to predict where a Justice Jackson would, would take the Supreme Court based on her existing judicial record. She spent most of her career as a district court judge, and she handled quite a few criminal cases during her time there. Uh, but none are too noteworthy or predictive about where she might go with the big issues of criminal law. Uh, so here's what, here's what we do now. As you might expect from a former federal defender, she certainly does not hesitate to rule against the government in criminal cases. Maybe her most notable criminal opinion is a, is a case called U.S. versus Young from 2018, which was a prosecution for possession of heroin. Uh, the issue involved criminal forfeiture, and the government wanted to forfeit not only the heroin, but also the $180,000 that the defendant had paid to obtain it. And Judge Jackson wrote a lengthy published opinion rejecting that as double counting. Um, and the, that opinion is clearly passionate about that issue. Uh, the, the other data point we have is, is Judge Jackson's undergraduate thesis at Harvard, which is called uh, The Hand of Oppression, Plea Bargaining Processes and the Coercion of Criminal Defendants. I think the title says it all there. Uh, so I'm fairly confident in predicting that she is almost certainly going to be more skeptical of the government in criminal cases than Justice Breyer was. Um, but the, the story isn't totally simple, I don't think. She's also ruled in favor of the government in some Fourth Amendment cases involving reasonable use of force, electronic surveillance, and probable cause, just a few. Um, so I don't think she's necessarily going to be an automatic vote for the defendant in every case. Um, and along those lines, one interesting question is how Judge Jackson would rule in cases where administrative law collides with criminal law. So as you all know, we live in a, in a new world now with thousands of federal criminal statutes, tens of thousands of federal regulations with potential criminal applications. Um, and so just as a thought experiment, take the, take the big non-delegation case from a few years ago, United States versus Gundy. Um, this is a case that, that split the court uh, along unpredictable lines. The defendant was a sex offender, and the question was whether the federal statute called SORNA unconstitutionally delegated legislative power, uh, basically the power to write a criminal code to the attorney general. And Justice Kagan rejected the challenge uh, over a dissent from Justice Gorsuch, Justice Thomas, and the Chief Justice. But Justice Breyer, notably, was on Justice Kagan's side, ruling in favor of the government. And so a key question, I think, is going to be whether Judge Jackson shares Justice Breyer's instinct 
to favor the government when broad claims of agency power are at issue? Or will her inclination to favor criminal defendants in cases like that prevail instead? That is a highly significant question, given that these kinds of cases can sometimes split Justice Alito away from Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas. Um, so she could, she does have the potential to provide a deciding vote in cases like that. If I had to bet, I would say she'll follow the Justice Breyer example and uphold broad claims of agency power, even where criminal defendants are involved. Where I, where I expect a Justice Jackson to potentially mark a change from Justice Breyer is in other areas that don't have as much cross-cutting impact as administrative law. Some of these other areas are also places where she could potentially cast tie-breaking votes. So, you know, for example, in recent years, Justice Breyer has tended to join the Chief Justice and Justice Alito in resisting a broad understanding of the Confrontation Clause. Will would a Justice Jackson share Justice Breyer's view on the Confrontation Clause, or will she tend to join Gorsuch, Sotomayor, and, and often Thomas in ruling for criminal defendants? And I, I suspect the latter, although there's no concrete proof in her record. Um, another, another final example with really huge practical impact in criminal law is the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial and the Apprendi line of cases. You know, Justice Breyer has been mostly against the idea that the Sixth Amendment requires a jury to find the facts that increase a penalty beyond the statutory maximum. And he's often found himself aligned with Justice Alito on that question. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, though, the court has gone the other direction um, and invalidated, for example, state mandatory sentencing guidelines and rendered and, and rendered the federal sentencing guidelines advisory. And I, I suspect that a Justice Jackson would shift the court more towards criminal defendants on these Apprendi issues, uh, which could have a potentially big impact on one looming question, um, the constitutionality of supervised release revocation proceedings where a judge typically finds the facts to send an offender back to prison. So to summarize my view before handing it back, back over, um, although there's some uncertainty, maybe a lot of uncertainty, I suspect that Justice Jackson would vote in favor of criminal defendants in most cases, certainly more so than Justice Breyer did. Uh, but when a criminal case raises broad questions of federal agency power, my strong suspicion is that she'll be more inclined to rule for the government. I'll hand it now to Professor Epps. Well, it's great to get the handoff uh, from uh, Ethan, who is uh, my former co-counsel on a criminal law case in the Supreme Court, Ocasio uh, versus the United States, that Ethan argued very ably, uh, but just don't ask us uh, how the case came out uh, in the end. And I teach criminal law procedures, so I, I think a lot about these things. Uh, one thing I want to say at the outset is, you know, you, when you're looking at differences, you shouldn't just look, just look at the bottom line votes. Like, are the votes going to be different in merits cases? Because there can be a lot of differences that don't track that, right? There could be different justices could have different interests. They could choose to kind of write dissents from denial of cert in particular cases, drawing attention to particular issues. There could be a tonal difference in how they approach uh, different cases and, you know, the imp things they put emphasis on. And, um, you know, Justice Breyer was, uh, you know, someone who his opinions were often, you know, regardless of how he came down, they were often a little tepid. And so you might be curious, like, uh, are, you know, would be Justice Jackson's uh, opinions, will they be sort of in certain criminal cases, will they be more heated? Will they, you know, focus on, on different things? And the thing that really uh, strikes me that, that uh, you know, Ethan drew some attention to, but I want to linger on is just quite how much uh, criminal experience uh, Judge Jackson has over the course of her career. So in addition to being uh, a public defender, she clerked on a district court. She, as a district court judge, she's presided over uh, jury trials. Uh, she was uh, on uh, the sentencing commission. She's got family connections to the criminal justice system. She has multiple family members who are police, uh, another who was sentenced to uh, life in, in prison. And so she just, she seems to have a lot more uh, exposure uh, to and knowledge, deep knowledge of the criminal justice system, um, as compared to, to Breyer, who was on the sentencing commission, uh, but otherwise was not, you know, did not have a career that was deeply enmeshed in criminal justice. Uh, you know, I took a look at the 
uh, college thesis she wrote about uh, plea bargaining that that Ethan mentioned. Uh, and you know, she comes at it, you know, concluding that plea bargaining, the plea bargaining process, is unfairly coercive. But one thing that's just interesting about it is uh, it's not just kind of a theory piece. It was it was something where she went and observed. She shadowed. Uh, shadow trials with public defenders. She interviewed judges, she interviewed prosecutors, she interviewed uh, defense lawyers. So she's coming at this with a lot of uh, real world understanding of the way the system works. And that that might influence how she writes opinions. It might influence the kinds of cases she tries to urge the court to grant or writes dissents if the court isn't interested in granting Um, and uh, seeing where her interest is and where that knowledge causes her to kind of like approach cases differently than Justice Breyer, who I think often was going to be like a little bit uh, viewing these things from uh, 30,000 feet up rather than kind of focused on uh, how these things play out in the real world. Uh, that is going to be very interesting. Um, <clears throat> just to, uh, you know, continue on on the theme that Ethan noted, uh, it, it does seem like there's in some, you know, a, a good number of criminal cases just kind of divide the court on predictable ideological lines. Some don't. Um, and the those cases seem to there seem to be some kind of functionalist formalist axis that causes um, the justices to sort of see cases differently. So Justice Breyer is in uh, the majority in uh, Maryland versus King saying it's OK to take DNA samples from arrestees. Justice uh, Scalia is in dissent there. And so sometimes there are these cases that uh, that don't track on. And, you know, I am very curious to see in those cases, uh, in some of the other cases, uh, lines of cases that Ethan mentioned, uh, how she tracks on there. Uh, and I think we we don't really know yet. Uh, and so I think I am uh, supposed to uh, hand it off to Roger Severino. Thank you very much. <clears throat> so it's an interesting position for the nominee to be in when she's going to be facing questions of affirmative action, when the president himself said he was only going to limit the selection of candidates to African-American women. That is a very awkward position for Judge um, Jackson to be in when she's going to be hearing cases on that very question when it comes to affirmative action in the university setting. It is doubly awkward because in that particular case, there's two. There's the Harvard case and the UNC case. It's Title VI, whether or not universities can use racial preferences. And Harvard admits that if you check a box of African-American or Hispanic, then you will get a preference in some way or another. And it was personal to me. When I applied to Harvard Law School, I was faced with the question as a Latino whether I checked the box. And even though my Colombian heritage is incredibly important to me, I only speak Spanish to my children, for example, I chose not to check the box because I didn't think it was fair for me to be reduced to just a demographic as a measure of my worth. And I didn't want that example for my children either. It should be on the merits, um, not your skin color. Well, a complication for, for Jackson is that she's on the Harvard Board of Overseers. And having been on the Harvard Board of Overseers, I can't see how she cannot be required to recuse herself from this very important case. So it might be a way of saving her from the awkwardness of her nomination if she gets through. Um, uh, and, and she's got many qualifications, but the fact that she was put in a separate category, you know, it, it, it unfortunately, uh, that's the problem with a lot of affirmative action programs. It starts raising questions. Um, she seems to be quite well qualified in terms of basic uh, skills in the law. However, I will note, she is one of the most reversed judges in the D.C. circuit. And that's that's saying something, given that she's in a liberal circuit. Right. It'd be it'd be one thing if you're, you know, an originalist was reversed in some uh, very liberal circuit. But she's no originalist. And she's being reversed in the D.C. circuit uh, with a lot of frequencies. She's among the top. So I think the Harvard case with or without her is probably going to signal the death knell of the Greta and Bollinger line of cases. Uh, and I think racial preferences, my, my bet is will we'll finally be found to be in violation of at least Title VI and in the education setting. And remember, Greta had a 25 year expiration date and we're already getting close to that. And that would just short circuit it um, by having this case decided in this term. I think a lot of the action on the civil rights side is going to be on religious liberty, which will be continuing a tradition of the robber's court. And generally, when they accept a religious liberty case, it will be in favor of 
broad protections for religious exercise. And I don't see that changing much here. So we have the coach Kennedy case where a coach was fired for praying after a football game where students would voluntarily join him. This was coming out of the ninth circuit and it's a first Liberty case. Uh, I think that's the fact that they took it, it, it signals that they're, they're willing to protect the rights of uh, even public employees and even public school teachers on non-instructional time to express their religious freedom. That's not a bad thing. It's not something that is to be ashamed of or cast aside. And it's not any sort of undue pressure on anyone. Another interesting link with Jackson uh, is that she was on the board of a Christian school that held as part of their mission to uphold the belief that marriage is a union of one man and one woman. Very interesting. Now she has distanced herself from, from the beliefs of that school, but she was on the board of it, which means that she's not being canceled by the left, right? If you, if you would have a, a candidate on the right coming up with that background, having been on a board of a school that supported man, woman, and marriage, they would be absolutely lambasted in the media, but she's getting a pass. And I think because she's coming from the left, so the left is not going to attack her on this. But I think it's just a good precedent that you could be on a board of an avowedly Christian school. And that is not in any way a disqualifier to serve on a Supreme Court. Two other cases. One, 303 Creative. This is following up on the gender identity and sexual orientation line of cases in places that, that are businesses that, that serve the public. And here you have a person who wants to set up a, a business that celebrates marriages through a website and it's an artistic expression. And the 10th circuit said that because it is a unique artistic expression, it must be compelled that they must celebrate same sex marriages, contrary to the religious beliefs. Um, this is a clear free speech compelled speech case. And I think it's going to, it's going to be a quick loser on the part of the 10th circuit. And this is an ADA ADF case. And they set it up very much to be reversed uh, by this very egregious set of facts where because you have unique uh, artistic services, that's why you must provide it uh, contrary to your religious beliefs. I don't think it's going to hold as a, as a free, uh, free speech case. Finally, the COVID exemption case. This is a dog that hasn't barked. We have seen the court split on the COVID issue. It struck down the OSHA mandate, but upheld the CMS mandate. We have not heard them say that mandates that do not have religious exemptions, whether or not they're constitutional. And they've punted a couple of times. And that's something I've been disappointed that they haven't taken it up. There's a New York case that is still left to be decided. I'm not sure where uh, Jackson will end up on these issues. If she's pro enforcement of government mandates, mandates or pro-liberty. I don't know, but that's one to, to definitely keep an eye on. And she might very well play uh, a deciding factor. So I'll pass it off to Professor Bill Marshall. Thank you. And uh, thanks to the Federalist Society for inviting me here today. I always say this when I start my talks, but I deeply appreciate the Federalist Society's commitment to a wide range of ideas. And I want to thank Dean and I want to thank the Federalist Society for inviting me here today. It's hard to predict what a Supreme Court justice is going to do and how they're going to approach things. And in just Jackson's case, there is not that much out there to predict how she's going to be on on civil rights. But let me talk about one aspect that Dan referred to before, which is her incredible breadth with the with uh, criminal law and all aspects of it on the sentencing commission, uh, her family being prosecutors, um, her own experience with a family member being a defendant and her being a public defender. Um, this isn't I know that's criminal, but I think it's going to give her a very, very well-developed approach to any official immunity cases that come before the court, which I think is an area that the court is likely to look into in the future. I'm not sure which way she's going to come out, but I think having her on as part of the as part of a court that decides that issue is going to give a fullness to that opinion and to the way a court approaches those decisions that it might not otherwise. Uh, with respect to some of the specific things that that uh, that that Roger pointed out, first of all, I don't think there's any question that she is as qualified as anybody, and any suggestion that she's not, I think, is 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 improper. She's incredibly skilled. There were a number of African American women who were skilled and able to take the job of Supreme Court justice, just as the way there were many women who were able to take that role when Ronald Reagan first suggested that he was committed to hire uh, to a place a woman on the Supreme Court. So I think I think any suggestion that maybe that 
that uh, the president wasn't looking at the top of the top of the top is just is just plain wrong. Uh, with respect to some of the questions that that uh, that that were raised, maybe about race and religion, uh, I think it is uh, great that she has been on the board of the school. I totally agree with. Roger, that it's good to have people on the boards of particular organizations. And just because you are on a board, that shouldn't be a disqualifier or a qualifier for a Supreme Court justice position. So uh, I don't know how that's going to lead to her decision making, but I do agree that it's an important part and a, and a commendable part of her background. Um, the issue itself on the kinds of questions of religious exemptions from neutral laws is not clearly a conservative or a liberal position. Justice Scalia wrote the opinion rejecting the idea that there should be exemptions from neutral laws. Justice Brennan was its strongest proponent. And how Justice Jackson will, will come out on these issues, I think, is, is unclear. Um, with respect to race, I mean, what does it mean for the advantage of diversity and race? And I, I think if, I, I want to be overly simplistic here. But I think if you come from a particular background in the same way that talking about being on the board of a school gives you some insights that other people might not. And I want to use a, a trivial example if I could, but just because it's easily accessible. I was watching a sitcom in which there are two friends. One is African-American and one is white. And the white friend gives the, the son of the African-American a water pistol. And the father is horrified. And the reason why the father is horrified is because he understands that if his boy is carrying a water pistol around, it could lead to a disastrous result that might not occur if it was a white boy. And having that kind of sensitivity doesn't necessarily lead you to results in particular cases, but gives a fullness to the decision making that I think is added by having somebody with a particular diverse background. So I think she will add that as well to the decision-making process. And what else do we know about her? We know that she's very careful in her decision-making, that she's very thorough in her decision-making, that she seems to be persuasive in her decision-making. So I expect a lot of that echoes who her mentor was, who's Justice Breyer, and we'll see a lot of Justice Breyer in her as she goes forwards. The final point that I want to make before turning it over to questioning is one area where I do think that she has signaled something, and that's with respect to presidential power. Because her decision on the McGahn case, it's not just a result uh, to look at that. I was in the White House Counsel's Office. I knew that I didn't have absolute privilege. The claim being made by the Trump administration was pretty broad, so I don't think it's anything all that controversial that she rejected a, a broad claim there. But she did so by suggesting a certain resistance to broad claims of presidential power. And I think that's important going forward, no matter if the president is a Democrat or if the president is a Republican. Uh, the one thing that has happened since the other Justice Jackson's opinion in Youngstown when he talked about the inevitable expansion of the presidency, as we've seen presidential uh, power expand even more. And to the extent that she's going to be a check on that, that's all to the good. So leaving that off, let me turn it back to Dean. Thank you, Dean. Thank you. And thank, thank you all for your opening remarks. Uh, I want to start by giving, giving you a chance to respond to anything you heard from, uh, from speakers uh, after, that went after you. I don't want to go through the order again. Uh, but yeah, who, who, I've, got, I've got some things I'd, I'd yeah, like and to And if say. I may, I got, I, if I could respond to... Go ahead, Mark. Roger, and then we'll go to Roger, and yeah. then we'll do Professor Epps. Go ahead, Roger. Okay. In, in respect to qualifications, Judge Jackson has all the standard qualifications you'd want to see in terms of judicial exper experience. Which begs the question, wouldn't it have been much better if President Biden had said, we're going to find the single most qualified person, regardless of their race and sex, and then say, and we've decided that it is Jackson. Why limit the search to just uh, one category? And that's what raises questions in people's mind. When you block off whole categories of people, which is exactly what President Biden did, that's the problem. 
And my issue with her isn't her, her background qualifications, it's how she's going to rule. Um, and she's going to be just a rubber stamp for the left. And indications are that she will be. Um, she appears to be an incredibly pleasant person and, and has a lot of uh, great uh, character traits going for her. But what matters is how she's going to rule. Um, and her entering in already in this process, when I thought would have been absolutely unnecessary, uh, raises questions that didn't have to be there. And it was an unforced error, I believe on part of the Biden administration. Professor Marshall, you, you want to respond? In, is, is, it a, 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 is, there a, is there any handicap in being selected under those criteria as announced in advance? Uh, no, I don't think anybody knew that any particular justice at any particular time was the single best, most qualified person. There have always been considerations. Sometimes it's being geographical. We want to pick somebody from the West. Sometimes it's been sometimes it's been what kind of with a governor of California, maybe to be picked or something that comes from a different kind of background. We've always had it. We've always had that before. And again, Governor Reagan, I mean, uh, President Reagan did that with respect to women. This is this is nothing particularly new. The fortunate thing is that we have a lot of very qualified people from a, with a lot of different characteristics. And for just and for President Biden to indicate that it was time at this point to have an African woman on the bench. I don't think that's anything that should be criticized. We know that she's well qualified. Everybody's agreeing she's well qualified. There are many people who are well qualified and. Uh, and she's one of those, and she's certainly eligible and well qualified for this position. Professor Epps, I think you want to. Yeah, so I think it is important to sort of uh, say when you something said you really don't uh, agree with. And so uh, when uh, Justice Ginsburg died, President Trump said, it will be a woman, a very talented, very brilliant woman. I haven't chosen yet, but we have numerous women on the list. That was less than 18 months ago. And so to the extent you see people, activists, commentators, senators making the argument that this nominee will have a recusal issue, will not be. Uh, if those arguments weren't being made about uh, Justice Barrett when she was when she's hearing cases involving gender discrimination, Title VII, equal protection cases, those are not good faith arguments. You have to be able to distinguish that. If people weren't saying that 17 months ago, that's not uh, a great argument. The other thing is the idea that she's been reversed sometimes means she's going to be a rubber stamp. You got to look at the opinions, right? You, you can't just say that. And so the criminal cases uh, that we looked at, she was getting reversed uh, because she uh, sustained convictions. And uh, so the idea that this is just, oh, she's being super liberal and she's being uh, reversed because she's not liberal enough. No, I mean, sometimes the law is complicated and you can't just sort of, you know, look at these numbers and say that means something. It's more, you know, you got to actually dig in a little bit and you, you kind of need to make arguments that really get at the issues. Ethan, you came off mute. Go ahead. Yeah, I'd like to, to pick up on something that Professor Epps said um, a little while ago uh, on a somewhat different topic, the, the functionalist versus formalist divide in the court that he noted. Um, I think that's an, an interesting point in the context of uh, both in terms of its effect on substantive criminal law and on um, what it says about that method of interpretation in general, because based on this is the Breyer versus Scalia uh, dividing line. Uh, based on my read of Judge Jackson's opinions, she's going to be more on the functionalist Breyer side. Her opinions are really not very formalist at all. Um, but I nevertheless think that's going to lead her to dramatically different conclusions in a lot of criminal law cases uh, than Justice Breyer would have reached, like on the confrontation clause or the right to a jury trial. Um, and that's because her experience, as, as Dan said, is deeply enmeshed with the criminal justice system, much more so than Justice Breyer's um, is. Um, and if that's right, what that shows, I think, is that it raises a fundamental question about that whole mode of functionalist interpretation, because it shows that judges can just end up reaching different conclusions in the interpretation of the same statutory or constitutional text just based on life experiences. Well, I think it's important to note that she's had 11.9% of her opinions reversed by the DC circuit. So one out of 10 times, her liberal colleagues are going to say, you got it wrong. Now, either it's because she got it wrong on the law, or she got it wrong because she was even farther to the left of the DC circuit. Those are really the only two options and neither one of those are good. I think you have to read the, I got to agree with yeah. what the answer. You got to yeah. read the yeah. opinions. Yeah, that's, you're just creating, you're saying either she's wrong because uh, the, the liberals are right on the DC circuit, or you're saying she's too left. I mean, it could be that she's right and they're wrong. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of possibilities here that, you, oh, I mean, that, just, that just doesn't work. I doesn't conservative work. view and is right on the law. 
Okay. Well, she, she's got, she's, she was in a case where she said, uh, you know, a, a criminal defendant uh, who was charged with uh, child pornography, uh, creating child pornography could be convicted. DC circuit says, no, uh, that issue is going to be resolved by the Supreme court. Uh, so I, you're just coming at it with the assumption that she's wrong. And look, if you're, if you're going to do that, that's great. But I think that the nice thing about these federal society events, they're designed to persuade people. They shouldn't just be kind of like speaking to the converted. Uh, and so, you know, it's more effective even for, for you guys, if you actually make arguments that, that resound like that, that really resonate with people. And that's not it. Let's see anything further on this point, but with regard to her qualifications, I, by the way, in the audience, uh, use the chat function. Some people in the audience have already found the chat function on the lower middle part of your screen. If you have a question, uh, I'm going to be selective in our questions, but, uh, this is the last question answered. I don't even know if our panelists can see these questions, but I'll read it. Um, what are her qualifications, experience, knowledge, and expertise in ruling on matters and cases relating to regulatory economics, tax matters, interstate commerce clause issues, constitutional business litigation, and business, uh, business first amendment issues. Um, that's a, that's a pretty, I mean, it gets into some specific areas of the law. Um, one thing I'm curious about that I'll layer on top of that question is her experience, um, at the district court level, as opposed, which is, which is eight or eight or nine years, I think, as opposed to the appellate court level, which is shorter. And I don't, I don't think we need to compare that to other justices and how they've done, but is there significance in that? The fact that she's been on a lower court, um, but less time on an appellate court. So anybody want to respond to that? You know, sure. I think that means she's going to be particularly well attuned to questions of civil procedure, which is a court that I, of course that I teach, yeah. uh, and evidence kinds of issues, and uh, which is incredibly important. She's going to be very attuned to the day to day events of 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 the way the system actually works. And I think that's incredibly all to the good, the same way that I think her experience on the sentencing commission is so important because it gives us a, 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 a real, she's very well tried in the weeds on those particular kinds of kinds of issues, as well as the public defender part. So I think she brings an incredible wealth to, to um, what's going on at the district court level, which is where most of the federal court cases are, needless to say. Are there any other are there any justices on the court now that have longer terms of service at the district court level? Does anybody know? I don't believe so. I could be wrong. I don't believe so. Um, this might take us back down the path of, of reversals. Um, and again, if you have a question, um, put it in the chat, please. Is there any is, is, there's, this question seems to go to the facts around the reversals. Is there agreement on the rate of reversal? Is it eleven point nine percent? Is it is it uh, higher or lower than that? Um, and has she been reversed at the as a district? I mean, as a court of appellate judge in, in her short tenure? Probably not. Appellate is now a case that's gone up from from the D.C. Circuit to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's ten out of eighty four cases were reversed, and there are several. Many many of her colleagues are much lower reversal rates. Um, there's one that had zero percent. Well, hasn't had enough of them in there. Fourteen cases, a triple pointy. Right. But she's had 10 out of 84 reversed. Um, I don't think she's had enough on the Court of Appeals to reach any conclusions. I think she's had maybe two, one or two published opinions so far. So is there anything I want to go to, back to something uh, Professor Epps suggested? Well, it's, it's an issue he raised. He'd make a suggestion on it. And the question was whether or not um, as a justice, uh, Judge Jackson would be more or less outspoken, maybe not than Breyer, but, you know, maybe would she be should we be in the top half of the court in terms of outspokenness, the bottom half? Is there anything in her history that suggests or points in one direction or another? And you can answer this question more generally, too. If, if, if we're going to assume um, that it's a 6-3 court as everyone's trying to characterize it, um, are people when writing dissents uh, more likely to be outspoken? Can I just say one quick thing about the about the reversal rate, which is yeah. uh, I don't exactly know what that um, denominator is supposed to be. But according to her questionnaire, she had 562 rulings and 11 were reversed. So that's less than two uh, percent. The other thing just to note about that is just saying, oh, it's a liberal circuit. <laughs> it's a panel system. You, there's like not every case goes on bank. And so you can have panels that are more or less conservative. And so there's not like you can't just sort of say, oh, D.C. Circuit is liberal. Uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. And I, I don't exactly know where those numbers are coming from. It doesn't look accurate to me. It's the number of negative appeals to the number of total appeals. And these are 
Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it seems like you should look at the number of decisions, right? You should look at, you know, because that's that's you're looking at the wrong number, because if you make a lot of really clearly correct decisions, you're less likely to get appealed. And so just that's that's cherry picking. And so I think you need to look at the actual total number of decisions, how many of them were wrong. And so it looks like ninety eight point zero four percent were not reversed. That's pretty good. Yeah. But this is for the appeals on issues that actually matter that are contested points. Well, how, how do we know? How do we know that they matter? I mean, she might've just written such good opinions. I mean, and, it, it, this is a classic thing with empirical analysis. You can't just, you're selecting on the dependent variable, right? You have to look at the whole data set. And so that's cherry picking. It's not going to work. It's not it, persuasive. It works, it works when she's compared to her colleagues using the exact same criteria. Not necessarily, not necessarily because they have different, they have different, it depends on how on the selection for who's, uh, who's appealing. So you can't assume it's a constant percentage because their selection effects. Colleagues it, but again, that's, you're, you're looking at the wrong metric. What is, what is the comparison in terms of total decisions? That seems like the right comparison. Even that isn't perfect because they're not all deciding the same cases, but that at least seems more accurate. Accurate. So and I, you're I, only I, talking about eleven, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is. And let's yeah, take a look is, at the absolute number here yeah. for a moment. Eleven. We don't know if they're procedure cases. We don't know what kind of cases they are. If there even are cases that involve a liberal conservative split, they could have been ERISA cases for all we know. Yeah. Um, and, so and, and, and again. When you compare the same apples to apples among her colleagues using the most relevant metric is negative appeals, right? But again, that's not apples to apples because there's a selection effect. Depending on how well the judge writes decisions, uh, the decisions are made about appealing. That's exogenous, right? You can't like you can't just say like, no, look at the total number of appeals. Look at you have to look at the decisions. Even that isn't a perfect comparison. But this is just this is classic bad empiricism, yeah. right? You but have the to ratio is what matters most. No, it, the ratio the isn't matters your, if, me, if you're looking at the wrong thing, right? This is just this is not persuasive because you're looking at the wrong thing because different judges will produce different opinions and different decisions that cause them to be appealed or not appealed differently. All right, let me interrupt here. Let me give Roger Severino to say 10 seconds. I think I understand, and I think the audience understands everybody's point on this, but Roger, if you want to sum up in 10 seconds, then we'll move on to another issue. Okay. She would have her decisions appealed to the DC circuit, would lose 11% of the time, and that far, far outpaces her colleagues when their decisions were appealed, who had much lower rates of being reversed by the liberal DC circuit. Right, but how many of those cases were not appealed because they were written well, well written. So again, I think we've got, I think we've got, okay. It, well, it's just, you're, you're giving him the last word. I want to, I want to have the last word. Everybody wants to have the last yeah. word, but I think the audience understands what both sides are saying here. So um, again, if you're, if you're in the audience and, and you have a question, you can put it in the chat. What has, has judge Jackson written dissents uh, on the DC circuit court of appeals? If so, do they say anything uh, about uh, what we could expect from her at the level of the Supreme Court. And I'll go back to my other unanswered question, uh, which is about her uh, her forcefulness or her voice uh, as a justice. Is there anything in her past that suggests whether she would be outspoken going forward? Yeah, I, I can jump in on that, Dean. I, I think it's, it's, it's unquestionably true that she's going to write more spirited, more forceful opinions than Justice Breyer did. I mean, as, as Dan correctly said, Justice Breyer is known for being um, a, little, a little more tepid in his opinions. And if you read what Justice Jackson has written, what Judge Jackson has written on the, uh, the district court or the D.C. Circuit, they, are, uh, they use more colorful language. And I think one area where you're going to see that um, potentially have an impact is uh, in the court's uh, emergency death penalty docket, um, where like the addition of of, a, of Judge Jackson to the court is not going to change the results coming out of those. I mean, these are inmates who uh, who file emergency applications for stays of their executions at the last minute, produces all these opinions at, at two in the morning out of the court, um, and you know those a lot of those split down amongst predictable ideological lines, and Judge Jackson's not going to change that split. But I think what you, if I had to predict, I think what you'll see are some uh, some forceful dissents from her um, in some of those 2 a.m. opinions. And, uh, and Ethan, you and I talked a little bit about this before, which is, you know, how, how much Kagan is really talking explicitly about the shadow docket uh, in, in recent opinions. And, uh, and maybe she'll be doing the same. 
I'll, I'll ask a question that follows up on the emergency docket or the shadow docket. Um, has it changed significantly in its use? Has it expanded? Has it always been there? When did it come into being? Uh, I, I feel like uh, everybody's talking about it uh, quite a bit now as if it's only recently emerged. Yeah, I think that's right, Dean. And, and I think Dan and I may differ on this. I, I really can't stand the term shadow docket. I mean, it's, it's just the emergency docket. Emergencies happen in our court system and they're, they're never going to go away. Like people need relief um, in many situations and they need it immediately. And uh, one example is when a death row inmate is about to be executed. I mean, you're not going to stop those inmates from filing last minute stays um, of execution. That's been going on for a very long time. It's not a new phenomenon. And I'm really unclear on what could be done uh, to stop emergencies from hitting the, the federal court system. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look in the in the long run, historically, there may have been may have gone up and down. If you look 40 or 50 years ago, there was a lot of uh, wacky stuff happening in these kind of in chambers opinions. Uh, it does seem like uh, there was less um, uh, in terms of really big. Uh, there was a lot of death penalty stuff, but there was maybe less that was happening. Um, in terms of uh, really big, really consequential issues, maybe getting kind of decided on uh, the emergency docket. I don't, I don't love the term uh, at this point either. A friend of mine, Will Bode, uh, came up with it, but it's not really in the shadows anymore. It's, it's sort of all the attention uh, is on uh, the docket. I think, I think you can say though there are some examples. Uh, there's, there's been a lot of activity in the last couple of years. There's really important legal questions that are getting decided uh, in that posture where there maybe wasn't true. Uh, a few years ago. Um, and so I think it depends, depends what category of cases, uh, cases you're looking at, but I, I don't think it's right to just say there's been, there's been no change and it's been constant. I think it's something, you know, different justices have different views, uh, about how to, how to use this power, when to grant. There's certainly been an increase in uh, granting injunctive relief directly by the court. Uh, that happens a lot more than it used to. So it's complicated. And, and you got to be careful what you wish for. So this all exploded over the heartbeat bill when the Supreme Court allowed the Texas pro-life law to come into effect. And then they actually granted argument and then had the same result afterwards. And we've had it also with the OSHA mandates, et cetera, where they're doing things on an expedited basis and they're doing it right. And I don't think this is this is a made up issue. Um, when Planned Parenthood was the one that delayed in bringing the case before tech, the Texas issue, and they were the ones who made the emergency petition. So, you know, how could you complain about an emergency decision when you're the one asking for it? Um, here's a question from the audience, and this concerns the overlap of criminal law and international law. So I guess primarily for our criminal law experts, any, any comments on, on that overlap potentially and judge Jackson? I mean, uh, I guess I don't know how often that matters. I mean, one area where it came up in recent ish years was Justice Kennedy's Eighth Amendment cases where he would kind of look at evolving standards of decency, partially measured by the practices of other countries very controversially. You know, I don't know. I don't have any particular reason in your background to think that's going to be uh, the focus. Um, I'm trying to think of, you know, Ethan, do you have any ideas about kind of other areas where international stuff kind of bleeds into criminal, which are usually yeah, I mean, domestic the, the, question, the question refers to maritime law, um, which I kind of view as its own unique topic with uh, that kind of heads in unpredictable directions and produces some unpredictable splits. I, I, I looked, I, I think I looked at, at her, at all of her um, criminal law opinions. Um, and I don't think we saw anything involving this intersection. Um, so it's really hard to predict where she's going to go there. I think she'll, she'll like in other areas, she'll be naturally inclined uh, to, to rule for the defendant unless there's some other cross-cutting issue that that ruling could, uh, could affect that she, that she cares about. Yeah, I mean, Ethan, you might be, might be overstating it to say she's going to naturally be inclined to rule for the defendant. As we talked about, you know, she's got cases where she didn't rule for the defendant where she gets she gets reversed. So, I mean, she clearly doesn't just reflexively rule for the defendant. Yeah. I mean, I, I she certainly has not ruled for the defendant hundred percent of the time. And there are fourth amendment cases where she has ruled for the government. So as I said at the beginning, she's certainly not going to be an automatic vote um, for the defendant in every case. Uh, but I, I do think on those confrontation clause and other constitutional uh, bill of rights cases, she's going to be more often than not, she's going to be the left of justice Breyer on those kinds of questions. Does she have a discernible view on the death penalty? I mean, on the constitutionality of the death penalty or cruel and unusual punishment? So I don't I don't think many 
I don't think she would have had to deal with with capital punishment in the District of Columbia, right, Ethan? Well, there was there were uh, quite a few capital punishment cases that just went through the District of Columbia in the last administration, um, went up to the court from there. But I don't think she was the district judge dealing with them. So I don't think she said anything about capital punishment. We may have missed it. Um, you know, I don't know if she'll stake out the the really extreme Breyer view that capital punishment is just simply unconstitutional, period. You know, you can't get further to the left of Breyer on that, yeah. on capital punishment. Um, but I, I, I do suspect she's going to be a pretty reliable vote to... Uh, the, the interesting thing on on that, the Breyer thing, is he didn't start off there. He kind of drifted on that. And so, you know, you know, maybe she doesn't start off there. Maybe she starts off somewhere else and drifts in the same to, to end up at the same place Breyer does. Maybe she's there at the beginning. Uh, hard to say. And there's also a question in the chat that it's not civil rights specifically or criminal law, but it, it talks about the confirmation process. So I'll, I'll ask it. Um, and that is. What, what do we expect going forward? How much will the, the justice reveal? And I'm interested in how unique or whether it's unique at all. Uh, is it that we're, I guess she's already doing one-on-ones. She's obviously been, been nominated. Um, there'll be a hearing presumably and a vote all while there is no vacancy. Um, and, and not that there's anything wrong with that or it's legally infirm or anything. How often does that happen that, uh, we're talking about a replacement uh, or filling a vacancy that doesn't yet exist. I think that happens with some regularity. It certainly happens a lot on the Court of Appeals where people retire pending confirmation of their successor. Uh, so there's a you know no break uh, in uh, continuity. I don't remember um, I don't remember the exact timing of uh, Justice Kennedy's departure and when all that happened. Obviously, you know the most recent. Uh, most two or the two out of the three most recent vacancies that didn't come up because the the justice in question had died, and and some justices conditioned the resignation on a successor being filled and confirmed. Yeah, um, but O'Connor, we know, O'Connor did that, right? O'Connor. But we do know that the Biden administration is trying to get this done as soon as possible because they're afraid they're going to lose the Senate and a Democratic slim majority, and that would doom any chances of a liberal justice being uh, confirmed. And I, and I think the question was about how, how is this going to be different from other justices and other confirmations? Well, I'm, I'm hopeful that the politics of personal destruction that we saw with Justice Kavanaugh and the smearing will finally come to an end. And the attacks on Amy Coney Barrett's faith and, and the dogma living loudly within her and all of that will end. <laughs> There's no guarantee, right? We've seen different treatment of conservative justices nominated, starting with Bork through through Justice uh, Thomas, and we've not seen the same treatment on the candidates from the left. And I think part of that is there's more restraint from the conservative senators versus liberal senators. So I'm hopeful we're not going to see the politics of personal destruction because she deserves better than that. Well, I really don't think that if we're starting off that by suggesting that there's something problematic about her nomination because she's an African-American woman, that that we're starting off in the right point, if that's the place that you want to go with that. I kind of agree with you that we should kind of eliminate that. But, you know, that's where a lot of people are starting, uh, is that there's something problematic about that. Although, as Dan pointed out, uh, that that uh, President Trump said a woman with Amy Comey Barrett before he nominated her. Uh, President Reagan did that with Justice O'Connor before he nominated her. So maybe let's get that off of the table right to begin with, and then we can proceed onward. And what matters are her qualifications, but most importantly, her judicial philosophy, how she's going to rule. And on that, in her previous confirmation, she said she hadn't formed her uh, judicial philosophy when it came to constitutional cases. How, how long does it take? How long have you been uh, a, a judge and now a, an appellate court judge? And I thought that was an incredible dodge to say she didn't ha- have had formed a judicial philosophy. And, and Justice Thomas, during his confirmation, said he had never discussed Roe versus Wade with anybody. So and, let's, you know, let's be fair, Roger. I mean, you want the you want the you want the direction to go fairness. Uh, in one way, let's make sure it goes fair in both ways. And, okay? and fairness is being able to have her answer on the record what her judicial philosophy is, what her jurisprudential po- approach is, uh, and that to guarantee she's not just going to be a rubber stamp for liberal policy, uh, not ends uh, result, uh, ends oriented results, but 
what does she think about originalism, textualism? She needs to answer those questions. We have justices who have answered yes, they are originalists. And I'm sure we'll um, see that during the hearings. Um, let me ask if there's anything in her writings or her past uh, that talk about precedent or, or stare decisis and might reveal any anything from her about uh, her views on that. You know, certainly less than uh, the most recent nominee, Justice Barrett, who as a scholar had actually written articles uh, about about stare decisis. And uh, so I have not seen uh, anything uh, approaching uh, approaching that uh, in this case. And obviously, as a lower court judge, you're, you know, certainly as a district court judge, your relationship to precedent is just very, very different than as a Supreme Court justice. I mean, I think one of the things we're not talking about here with respect to some of this is that she's going to be coming into this position knowing that in a large amount of cases, she might be part of a 6-3 minority. And I think the way that a judge is going to proceed in that circumstance might be different than they know if they're going to be in a in a majority. They're going to just naturally want to try to build greater consensus. Uh, that might influence the way they write opinions or they write the way they write dissents. They're going to be naturally inclined to want to work with the majority rather than just being an outlier dissenter. So I think I think that's one of the things that uh, that I'm sure that President Biden thought about when he nominated and picked Judge Jackson to be one, his appointee to the court is how well she works with with a uh, with a group of judges and we'll see how that works out not everyone i don't think has that same instinct if i'm going to be in the minority let me try to build let me try to build a majority instead i think a lot of justices go into this go into that situation saying i'm just going to dissent i'm going to say what i think the law is and i'm not going to try to build consensus and change my view um i know i'm probably going to lose but that's okay i'm, I'm here to say what i think the law really is. Um, and I don't know what kind of justice she's going to end up being in that, in that regard. I mean, I think there are other nominees, other potential nominees he could have picked that would have been more inclined to, to be consensus builders than this one, but only time will tell. I agree. Well, here's a really abstract question. And that is what, what are we going to be saying about uh, a justice Jackson 30 years from now or 40 years from now? Um, that requires an enormous amount of speculation, but it might give some insights into what do you think of her as, as in, in terms of her potential. Is she going to, I'll, I'll leave it there and see if anybody wants to respond to that. I don't think she's going to change the overall trajectory of the court at this stage. Uh, is she going to be more like Kagan or more like Sotomayor? Now, Sotomayor is the bomb thrower that often makes some rather outlandish claims, uh, particularly an oral argument. Um, whereas Kagan is much more thoughtful and builds bridges. And I think, uh, I think uh, Professor Epps, I think you made a point that it, is she going to be in a 6-3 or is it Marshall? That could make a difference. That could make a difference. And I think if she has a more caustic personality, personality like Sotomayor, she'll be less effective. Indications are she's not that type uh, just from her personality. But again, once you have that lifetime appointment and it's your last confirmation uh, that you'll ever have to go through, you know, it's just her conscience is it was what will guide her. Will she be true to the law and faithful to the Constitution or will she answer to politics, uh, the president's liberal policies, who is appointing her if he if she gets through or not? Too many justices have, have drifted uh, once they get in into that appointment. I think it's think looking 30 years ahead is, is also hard just because we have no idea. We know the axes today and we have no idea what the issues are. People are going to care most about 30 years from now. There could be all sorts of issues about artificial intelligence and things that, that we can't even imagine uh, right now. And that won't necessarily break down on, on the lines because, you know, presidents appoint people in part thinking about the issues in the here and now and, and stuff can, stuff can change. Yeah. It's a hard question to answer. Dean about what 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 we're going to think thirty years from now. Obviously, I mean, I I think she will be uh, I, I think she will be a, a reliable vote on the on the Kagan Sotomayor side of the court. I think that that's not going to change over the next thirty years. Um, beyond that, it's really hard to it's really hard to say. Yeah, I'm really hopeful that because of her 
background with both a large firm, with public defender, with sentencing, with a district judge, with an, as an appellate judge, that she's going to bring a, a wider breadth of experience to her position than many other people have. And it's a really terrific breadth. And also, if you add the fact that in addition to her being a public defender, she has, it was pointed out before, family uh, who, are, who are in law enforcement and family that was also a defendant, that that richness of her background uh, will inform her decision-making uh, in a way that that, that will uh, sit well with posterity. But I certainly agree with everybody else in the panel when they, when, when they say, who knows for sure. Uh, Supreme Court justice is like a box of chocolates, I guess. Fair enough. And with a force gun coming. Um, we've got about 60 seconds for each person to give it for e enough time for each person to give 60 seconds in terms of a closing thought. Let's go in reverse order. Uh, Bill, uh, Professor uh, Marshall, you sort of wrapped up there, but let me see if you got 60 seconds more. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I think I won't take that much time. I do think that you're very influenced, Justice Breyer is her mentor. I think we'll see a lot of similarities with the way that she approaches cases and the way in the way that he does. I do think she will try to be a consensus builder, although I certainly agree with Ethan that that's not inevitably the case. But I do think that all indications are that she will be that. Roger Severino. Well, I think she was nominated because she will be a reliable vote for the left. I think that's the political reality of the Democratic Party today and of this president. Uh, and she's got a, a lot uh, going for her. Uh, and I just wish that the president had not actually just put a, a, a unfortunate start by having to exclude a whole category of people. They could have picked her and it would have been something that would be much easier to be celebrating. And then we could just delve straight into philosophy and not have to worry about had somebody been excluded as in part of the pool because uh, she could have been picked anyway. And that's why I believe it was an unforced error. So, yeah, I think I, I just would say uh, as you, you know, watch the watch the process and, and see it uh, unfold, um, you know, just just think about the criticisms that are made, make sure they're being made in a fair way and in a consistent way, you know, because, uh, you know, was it an unforced error by President Trump to to confer, to, to pledge that he would nominate uh, a woman? If that wasn't, we need to have some theory of why uh, why this is different. Uh, and so I think uh, in terms of whether, you know, she's being uh, appointed because she's going to be a reliable vote for the left, presidents always take ideology, ideology into consideration. Absolutely, President Trump took ideology into his consideration in all of his nominees. And so that being a criticism in and of itself doesn't isn't, you know, doesn't doesn't move the needle. And so, you know, I think it's fine to say this person has an has a philosophy or an approach that I don't agree with. And people, you know, people can have that debate. But I think it's important to really uh, compare apples to apples and, and to apply the same standard. Ethan Davis. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree. She's going to be most likely a reliable vote on that, that Kagan Sotomayor wing. But returning to the criminal law points that, that I was here to talk about, um, I think some of those are the most interesting questions here, because those are the questions that are splitting the court right now down some of the unusual lines. Um, and, and some of those questions are also some of the most momentous questions that are affecting our, our criminal justice system now, like the role of the judge versus the role of the jury in our criminal justice system is something that ha that affects countless trials and uh, throughout state and federal courts throughout the country every day. And so watching what she says on that, on those topics during her confirmation hearings is going to be a really good way to see uh, what is actually going to happen in the real world in this country as a result of this of this nomination? Well, thank you one and all for your comments, for your expertise, for spending an hour here with us. I certainly appreciate it. I know, I know our audience does. Uh, to our audience, thanks for your questions. I'm sorry we didn't get to all of them, but I think we covered a lot of territory here. So congratulations to uh, our panelists. Um, and a reminder to the audience to check your website and monitor your emails for upcoming Federalist Society events. But until that next event, we are adjourned. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.